There you go. Thank you so much. And Mm -hmm. welcome, everyone, to the final general session of this year's ACB DC leadership meetings and legislative seminar coming to you virtually, but live on Zoom, on ACB radio, on your smart speakers, streaming on Facebook, YouTube lives, as well as acb.org slash live. Um, That's uh, one of the amazing things about this new world we live in. There are so many ways to reach out and connect. Like Cindy Hollis was saying earlier, the importance of connection and how we're able to connect with our members. But as we started out with on Sunday with the fireside chat led by President Dan Spoon, we're finding ways to connect more and more with our partners on the national level in the blindness space, as well as our corporate partners, our partners within the federal government. Um, so it's, it's really an exciting time. And as we're going to wrap up our programming here today, I want to give a quick reminder that our legislative imperatives, the Medicare Demonstration of Coverage for Low Vision Devices Act, the Disability Access to Transportation Act, and the Exercise and Fitness for All Act. This information is available to download from the event website, including the one-pager that you can attached to an email when scheduling your meetings or sending a thank you to your members of Congress and their staff with whom you're arranging meetings with this week and next, and also available on the website and probably arriving into your affiliate leadership inbox is the Hill feedback form. Because if a Hill meeting happens and we don't find out about it and we can't follow up and keep continue to build that relationship, then it's almost like it never happened at all. And I'm sure that's something that the, the panelists that we have coming up next can relate to when they do their own virtual and in-person uh, you know, membership and grassroots events on Capitol Hill. Rick Morin, I know that I, I said that we were going to use the, the video provided by the American Foundation for the Blind here at the beginning of the session. I will beg your forgiveness and ask us to hold on to that video because we have the rest of our panelists here and raring to go. Um, Just a quick rundown on the folks who are joining us here. We have Paul Schrader from the American Printing House for the Blind, Sarah Brown from Prevent Blindness, Rick Webster from National Industries for the Blind, Barbara Raimondo for uh, the Conference of Educational Schools and Administrators for, for the Deaf, um, Eve Hill with the Stop the Wait Coalition and John Perret from National Federation of the Blind. So we've invited our partners here to share their priorities for the 117th Congress, as well as this first year, 2021. And I, I think it's really interesting how you'll see there are some themes and narratives that run through uh, the priorities and natural areas for collaboration between ACB and all of our partners. So first, I'd like to welcome Paul Schrader. Paul, how are you doing today? I am great, Clark. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Always excited to be at this uh, leadership meeting. Uh, and no stranger to ACB conferences and our leadership meeting, but you are now visiting us in a new role. 
Yeah, I keep keep changing hats, uh, and uh, I don't know that there. I don't know that my head's looking any better for it. But there we go. I'm I'm now now getting to hang out with the American Printing House for the Blind. And Paul, what are some of the major uh, priorities and issue areas of focus for you and APH here in the 117th Congress? Well, as as some of you know, maybe everybody knows, uh, the American Printing House for the Blind really has one overriding policy priority, and it's the same priority every year, and that is to protect and preserve and promote uh, the appropriations line that APH uh, is funded under. And so since 1879, APH has actually had a federal law that designates us as the agency to produce educational books, materials, products, technologies, uh, whatever's needed. I mean, primarily it was books back in the day, but uh, we've adapted and, and gone uh, to many other areas as well. But since 1879, basically the feds have, the, con- the, the Congress in its wisdom has declared that APH is the institution that has that responsibility and they have provided funding a couple different ways over the years, but now it is an appropriations line item under the Department of Education's budget. So we fight like heck, uh, although I guess we're not supposed to say that anymore. Uh, we advocate uh, for that that line item um, every year to ensure that um, uh, the appropriation is protected. And, and I'll just say, you know, that appropriation, I've been talking to a lot of the staff on the subcommittee that oversees our appropriation, and it's, it's part of the subcommittee that many, many ACB folks will know well because it's the same one that does education and rehabilitation funding. Um, and I've been explaining to them that that appropriation really has two pieces to it. The bigger bulk of that money goes back to the states uh, with state accounts that are then uh, used to provide books and services and products to students in each state. So really state officials are the ones that are give us our marching orders, tell us what they need and to whom most of the funding goes to ensure uh, that that's, that material and books can be provided in a timely fashion to students. Well, great, Paul. Thank you so much for sharing that with our members. And we look forward to working with APH to ensure that students with visual impairments have the tools and resources that they need to be successful. And I would just add two quick things, and you know, maybe we'll come back to, to questions if there's time later. But um, one of them would be, APH has not had, they've had a person who looked after things in Washington for years, but they haven't had somebody who's here on the ground. And that's now me. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is to make sure that the printing house is doing our fair share to help with other advocacy areas. Uh, And so I'm very keen to listen to this panel. I know, I know these colleagues well, uh, and I, I am very much trying to get APH much more engaged in helping on these other issue areas, in, in many instances, areas wh- where we do have some expertise to offer, certainly on special education laws, but also transportation and wayfinding and a number of other areas that uh, are, are something. And the other thing I would say, just I want to remind people in case they didn't know, that, a- that APH is trying to develop uh, products that might be of interest to people outside of the education area. And, and our Mantis Braille display really kind of started that process it's a QWERTY keyboard with a Braille display. It's a very nice, uh, essentially note-taking computer 
uh, device. And it's uh, one that kind of started as a product that we thought would be useful for professionals, and it is, but it's also a product that's available to students in upper level grades as well, because it really turns out that they're very useful for them. But I, so I did want to say that uh, we very much want to hear what it might be of interest to people that, that hasn't been developed or that's needed in this space. Uh, and perhaps APH could step in and, and be a, a helpful partner in developing some products that are uh, sold outside of the education uh, arena. Thank you, Paul. And I can see some uh, some community events with ACB's membership services coordinator, Cindy Hollis, in the fu- in your future and APH's future. Ready anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Next, I'd like to turn to Rick Webster. Rick Webster is the Vice President of Public Policy for National Industries for the Blind. Rick, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, Clark. How are you? Doing well, thank you. And here we are wrapping up day two of programming, and we're thankful that you are able to join us and share some of the public policy priorities for NIB here in 2021. Thanks, Clark, and always good to be with ACB. We've been a longtime supporter of ACB's uh, conferences and activities. And uh, happy to give you a brief uh, overview of just four issue areas. And I promised Clark I'd be really brief. Uh, First and foremost, we're interested in looking at smart targeted reform of the Ability One program this year. Uh, We're planning on going to Congress with a list of what we think are smart reforms for the program that can help build confidence in the program amongst our federal customers as well as members of Congress. One thing we'll continue to do as part of that, we've been doing for several years, and that is advocate for more funding for the Office of Inspector General uh, within Ability One. Uh, I've been, I'm coming up on a 10 year anniversary with, with NIB, and I have not seen a greater development for this program than the IG's office within Ability One, because it is shining a spotlight as it's supposed to do on things that need to change within the program. We strongly support what Tom Larrick and his team are doing. We also want to make sure during uh, looking at what is is the IG's office. So the Office of Inspector General is a a new operation that began in 2017. Uh, Federal agencies, most certainly every large agency has an Office of Inspector General, which is essentially sort of an internal investigative unit that looks at waste, fraud and abuse and examines uh, both sort of in this case of Ability One, the staff that are part of the Ability One Commission, the Ability One Commission members within the central nonprofit agencies and all the associated nonprofit agencies. And uh, Tom Larrick and his team do audits and examinations of every aspect of this program. And frankly, we've argued for years the program needs better oversight, needs better accountability, needs to be more transparent. We want to build on what the, the IG has done as we look at uh, Ability One reform to make the program more transparent again so there's greater confidence in the program. Um, one of the biggest things we're trying to do, Clark, and everyone through reform is to better align uh, the JWAD Act and Ability One with the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. Uh, I'll get to it in a second, but competitive wages, at least on the NIB side, we're okay there. The issue is integration. And what, what do we need to do within Ability One to change things to be better aligned on the issue of integration so we get you know, more uh, full sort of full and fair consideration, if you will, by uh, VR, state VR and blind agencies when it comes to placements and referrals within Ability One. So we have a lot of work to do. It's going to be a long haul. Uh, just a couple of years before I joined NIB in June of 2011, 
JWAD modernization had been part of a two-year effort that uh, amounted to nothing, unfortunately, because uh, all the sides couldn't come together. But we're ready to take another run at it. Um, sort of on a somewhat related note, I'll just mention is NIB continues to strongly support elimination of 14C and argue for payment of fair wages to all people with disabilities. Uh, all of the NIB agencies pay competitive wages to every single employee working on an Ability One contract. And as some have heard me say before, we have literally one agency with fewer than 10 people being paid on certificate on a commercial contract. We want that number not to be fewer than 10 people, but to be zero. And that's out of a, a community of 5,500 people who are blind working at NIB agencies. We want to get to zero with that number and we'll continue to endorse and work strongly for the passage of legislation to phase out 14C. Uh, third, just sort of moving on, we're going to continue to support uh, creating a statutory utilization goal for Ability One with the Department of Defense, which is by far our largest and most loyal customer. Uh, we know there's more we can do with DOD in terms of additional contracts. We also want to see other non-DOD agencies step up and use the program more robustly than they do now. And that's only going to happen if Congress passes sort of a mandatory statutory goal. And we hope that can be done in tandem with program reform efforts over the next couple of years. And just the last issue quickly is we're delighted that the Biden disability plan has a plank that supports elimination of the SSDI cash cliff. This is a huge issue for NIB and its employees. The majority of Americans who are blind who work at our associated nonprofit agencies are also SSDI beneficiaries. Too many of them face this difficult challenge of having to turn down, in some cases, promotions, additional salary, uh, more hours, because they're concerned about going over what's called the substantial gainful activity threshold, the income threshold. So they're put in this awful position of having to turn down career advancement out of fear of losing that monthly benefit. And we're very much hoping that the White House and Congress can begin to really focus on this challenge because the cash cliff is holding people back. Uh, and finally, along the lines of what I heard someone say earlier about a shameless plug, I'm going to make a shameless plug for a new program that NIB has just stood up uh, that we hope will be successful in matching employers with prospective employees who are blind or visually impaired. The initial website launched a few weeks ago, and the full version of the site is coming, I think, within the next week. And this is the Insight program, N-S-I-T-E. And the website for more information is nsite.org. And there's information on that site. And again, it's going to be built out within the next week or so. But there's information on the site for both job seekers and for employers. And we're excited about the opportunity to tackle this, this chronic issue of working age Americans who are blind being underemployed, not being employed. Uh, we have to really just uh, make some make some progress in this area. And we're excited about partnering with corporations, companies, organizations to bring them together with talented individuals who are blind uh, to help build careers. So um, appreciate the time and, and look forward to any questions people have. Thanks, Clark. Thanks, Rick. And that Insight program, I, I know ACB has shared that with our members and will continue to do so as we hear more updates with that rollout. Next, I'd like to turn to John Perret, the Executive Director for Advocacy and Policy 
with the National Federation of the Blind. John, I know our members were very excited to have President Mark Riccobono join us with, for Dan Spoon's fireside chat on Sunday evening. And thank you so much for joining us to share NFB's policy priorities here today. Thanks, Clark. Uh, President Riccobono was thrilled to be uh, at the event Sunday night. I watched the entire uh, program and found it uh, quite interesting. And thanks for having me uh, here today. The uh, I'll kind of echo some of the previous comments, but first maybe launch right into uh, five particular issues that the National Federation of the Blind uh, is working on. Uh, many of these working on with with you, uh, with ACB, and uh, with some of the other groups. First is the Access Technology Affordability Act. That is uh, the problem that we're trying to solve is the high cost of access technology to try to make access technology more affordable uh, to blind people in America. One way to do that would be through a refundable tax credit, which is what we're suggesting uh, in this particular legislation. Uh, In particular, it's a $2,000 refundable tax credit for use over a three-year period. That means you could use it all, say, in year one, or use a little bit in year one, a little in year two, a little in year three, and then it sort of refreshes again, so it's all, you get another 2000 for use in, in year four. And refundable is important uh, for, for people to know. Refundable means in the, in the tax world that even if you didn't owe any taxes, you would still get a refund. So if you didn't owe any taxes but bought a $1,000 item uh, and access technology item, you could file your tax return and you'd get a $1,000 refund to cover that expense. We came very close to getting this passed in the 116th Congress. It is has been reintroduced in the 117th. And so it's uh, H.R. 431 in the House and S.212 in the Senate. Currently 12 co-sponsors in the House, eight in the Senate, uh, a lot of very substantial full committee chairs, subcommittee chairs, both very bipartisan, and look forward to trying to move that forward uh, very quickly here at the 117th. The next would be the 21st Century Website and Mobile Applications uh, Bill. Uh, our intent here would be to try to, this problem really is the large number of inaccessible websites and mobile apps. I encounter uh, an inaccessible website or mobile app almost every day. I assume virtually everyone on this call uh, has the same problem. And so we have to do something about this. The law requires websites and mobile apps to be accessible. So what's, so what you might say, what's the problem? Well, there's not a strong statutory definition of accessibility. We're suggesting that a, a law should exist that does create a a specific statutory definition of of accessibility first. And second, that there should be a defined regulatory schedule. We're thinking that it should be that this work should be assigned to the Access Board. The Access Board really went through this when it did the 508 refresh, so they have a lot of expertise in this area. And uh, spending 12 months to do a notice of proposed rulemaking seems like a reasonable amount of time followed by another 12 months to put out a final rule, followed by another 12 months for companies to comply. 
you might think that, oh, that's kind of fast. No, they've had 30 years to comply uh, because the ADA already requires this. So we're just we're just making it clear and providing regulatory clarity in this legislation. And uh, we do not have it. It's not yet sponsored in the House and the Senate, but hopefully it will be soon and certainly will keep you informed when that happens. Next would be the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. Uh, problem here is the large number of home-based, uh, really, electronic medical devices that are not non-visually uh, accessible. So this could be from chemotherapy at home, chemotherapy to at-home dialysis. A lot of these uh, have, by doing it at the home, it's not only it's improved safety and efficacy, to uh, a lot of the other diabetes management tools and, and even going down to electronic um, thermometers. I realize that there are some of these are already available in a non-visual way, but certainly not enough. And in many cases, there's none. So this bill would uh, ask the FDA to do a very similar uh, regulatory, a very similar schedule, which is a 12 months to create uh, a notice of proposed rulemaking, another 12 months to issue a final rule, and 12 months for companies to be compliant with that rule. Uh, Next would be voting. We really uh, believe that we must improve, oops, must improve accessibility for uh, the entire voting process from registrant registration uh, through ballot delivery. Uh, the two areas that uh, need particular attention, uh, which we are working with you, with, with ACB and others on, mm-hmm. is the uh, making sure that there's enough ballot marking devices such that people have really can maintain their privacy and, and secrecy. If you're the only one at a precinct that files, uses uh, in-person ballot marking device, uh, and that ballot is of a different size and shape, uh, it's easy to realize how that one blind person voted. That happens more often than you might think. Uh, so we think that there has to be a sufficient number of ballot marking devices to solve this problem and really to make using the ballot marking device the primary voting method. Second would be not only electronic ballot delivery, that's when you are able to get uh, the ballot delivered to, to you such that you on your home computer, typically be an HTML, you, you fill out the ballot and then print it, sign it, and, re- and return it. But the printing and signing and returning uh, are not necessarily accessible. First of all, a lot of blind people don't have printers. If they have all the other equipment, they still don't have the printer, then the signing, and then the return where if you had electronic ballot return, that you could get it delivered to your computer, fill it out, and then send it back in some fashion, that would solve this problem. So we're working there. A lot of the legislation there that we're particularly focused in on is uh, HR1 and S1, because they both contain a lot of voting components. The last and maybe hopefully everyone on this call will, will voice their support for the elimination of subminimum wages for people with disabilities. I anticipate that that's going to be the case. So we certainly feel the same way. 
And the uh, so whether it's support for what will probably be the transformation to competitive and integrated employment act coming from Congress uh, that has not been introduced in the house or Senate, but we, uh, we understand that, you know, that's coming soon or it's the, the actual the text that is released in the raise, raise the wage act that has been introduced in the house and the Senate. Uh, we, the NFB certainly supports section six which provides for a phase-out over a five-year period, elimination, phase-out, and elimination of sub-minimum wages. And then also what we anticipate, uh, well, that part of that that's in, be, that's in the American Rescue Plan. Uh, actually, it's, it's in there, not planned to be. It's in, it's in there, and that's actually going through the starting the budget recon- reconciliation process started yesterday, uh, Section 2101. Uh, has a very similar thing, which we support. So there's a lot happening there. We continue to monitor the autonomous vehicles and support those. I won't go into any more detail there. And the um, stopping, ending the the six-month, stopping the wait for the Social Security. Right now you have to spend five months waiting for your SSDI and 24 months for your Medicare, Medicaid, sorry, just Medicare, uh, that's after you're deemed eligible. We oppose that. Think those waiting periods should be eliminated. We certainly think there should be a phase out. And another, so there's three things: Social Security. The third thing on Social Security we would urge is that there should be a limit to the reach back on overpayment. This idea that you can reach back five, ten, fifteen, twenty years, long after the money maybe has been given to a person and and spent. And that you can reach back is is unacceptable, and we think that should be time limited. That would be my quick overview. Thank you, John. And I, I know, especially over this past year, that several of our state affiliates, whether New York, Virginia, uh, Illinois, Kentucky, and so on and so on, have worked very closely together on improving access to accessible voting as well as ACB and NFB on the national level as part of the National Coalition on Accessible Voting. So I just wanted to give a quick thank you for your partnership and the work that NFB is doing in that space as well. Thank you. On the topic of Social Security, next I'd like to go to Eve Hill, attorney with Brown Goldstein Levy, and on behalf of the Stop the Wait Coalition. So Eve, thank you for joining us here today. Happy to be here. I should have just said, listen to John. John's got my (laughs) So uh, NFB and ACB are now part of a coalition that I'm helping to lead to uh, stop the wait. The five-month waiting period for SSDI benefits that you've already paid for is unfair and is purely a cost-saving measure for Social Security keeping our money so that they can save our money for themselves. I don't, I don't, I don't get why that's okay. And then the additional two years, by the way, it's 24 months after the five month waiting period to get Medicare eligibility, not being able to afford uh, to get SSDI cash benefits so that you can pay your rent and your um, food and by the way, premiums for whatever health care you're going to get during that period of time is literally bankrupting and killing people. 
about 10,000 people a year die while waiting. About 10,000 a year go bankrupt while waiting. And people end up on SSI and Medicaid in numbers that would they would not need to do if they were able to get the disability insurance benefits that they've already paid for in a reasonable period of time. So we have put together a funder, which makes me very happy, a team, including lobbyists and uh, communications people and organizers, to, uh, to let Congress know and the administration know that however, whatever vehicle they use for this, they need to pass the Stop the Wait Act. Senators, Senator Casey and Representative Doggett introduced it last year, but didn't push it very hard. At the same time, in the last Congress, uh, Congress did exempt people with ALS from the five-month waiting period. We don't want to do this one disability at a time. It's money that we all paid in. The The basis for the five-month waiting period when it was introduced in the 1970s was, so, was in part, not just to save money as people died, but to um, make sure that people would, in fact, have their disabilities for a year, which is the standard. But given how long SSDI processing takes, it takes over a year <laughs> on average to, to find people eligible. So we already know that we don't need a five-month waiting period or exclusion period. You do not wait for those benefits and then get them. You're excluded for the first five months. In a time of pandemic, when more and more people with disabilities are losing their jobs, even if they've been employed up until now, and when people are losing their jobs for the pandemic reasons and are going to are developing disabilities, including related to COVID uh, and are not going to be able to return. We really need everybody to be able to pay their rent and pay their food and contribute to our economy. And we also need people to be able to afford to pay healthcare premiums uh, using that five month period of benefits and by getting healthcare during the five year or two year period, people are more likely to be able to, return to work and not be permanently on the SSDI rolls. So these are all really good reasons, uh, both for people and for the United States, that the Stop the Wait Act needs to end. So we're working, going to work very hard on getting that um, message and not a message, a demand into Congress in a bipartisan way. Um, The website should go up tomorrow and we will have a Twitter whatever it's called, handle, and a Facebook page. And we will be encouraging you all to share it with people, ask them to call their representatives, and share their stories of what the five-month waiting period does to real people. Thanks, Eve. And we look forward to working with you and the coalition on that initiative. Me too. Uh, Next, I'd like to turn to Sarah Brown, the Director of Government Affairs for Prevent Blindness. Sarah, how are you doing today? Hey, Clark. It's a lovely 60 degree after a long winter here in (laughs) D.C., so I'm having a great day. (laughs) Not that we can complain. (laughs) Not at all. Yeah, Yeah, especially considering, um, you know, we're planning our Eyes on Capitol Hill advocacy event. We had a big Texas group, so we had to for their benefit and their sanity and just, you know, for the sake of making sure they're back on their feet, had to cancel their their meetings. And I think that they are very relieved about that. Just get some breathing room. It's always good. And Sarah, with your eyes on Capitol Hill event, what are the priorities for Prevent Blindness? 
Um, so uh, tomorrow is when we start our meetings. They're over two days on February 24th and 25th. We've got about 80 advocates from across the country. So this is actually one of the biggest events that we've had and the first virtual that we're doing. I really do miss those in-person advocacy days, but virtual is a brand new learning experience. Um, so we actually moved um, our advocacy day from July, which coordinates with our national summit uh, last year. And the reason for that was to um, help sync up with the appropriate process right now. So everybody's looking at the um, federal budget for next year for FY 2022. Um, and so uh, that is what Prevent Blindness is focusing on. There are two great programs at the CDC that we are really trying to encourage Congress to, um, one, maintain uh, funding for, and then also increase funding for another one. So those two programs are uh, the Vision and Eye Health program at the CDC. And currently it's at $1 million, and we would like to see a funding level of $5 million specifically because that particular program um, is really heavily involved in conducting national-level surveillance of eye diseases, of vision impairments, uh, severe blindness, uh, or severe vision loss and blindness. And um, really what we're seeing right now uh, is the need that is demonstrated uh, from a lack of um, funding for our national public health system um, and our infrastructure and capacity to do that kind of work. This is something that we've known for a long time over in the public health space, but now we're seeing the consequences of that with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, that's really caused a lot of um, issues in um, helping people get access to vision care so that if they are susceptible to eye diseases um, or just conditions that might um, impair their vision at some point, um, along their lifespan, you know, we're really seeing a lot of complications with people getting in to get um, essential preventive screenings. So uh, we think it's a great time to increase that funding line. We certainly hope that Congress agrees. Um, the other funding program or for the funding request that we're asking for is for glaucoma. It's a sister program um, at the CDC along with the Vision Health Program. Um, and this one really focuses on glaucoma prevention. So it really targets those high-risk populations or underserved communities and makes sure that they understand the importance of early detection, prevention, and getting um, access to glaucoma treatment if needed. So busy, busy time for us. Um, I think also one thing that is unrelated to the um, appropriations process, and Clark, you and I have talked about this quite a bit, about how our um, organizations can work together um, and encourage our colleagues in the vision and eye health space um, to do this, is to recruit members for the Congressional Vision Caucus. Um, so if I can take a minute to just explain what that is, um, it's a caucus that's currently built up um, of around 40 members. So it's kind of low at this point. We'd like to see that number a little higher. Um, it's currently co-chaired by three fantastic members of Congress who are just very engaged in the issues. Uh, so currently it's being led by Congressman David Price from North Carolina um, and two Republicans, Congressman Steve Stivers from Ohio and Congressman Gus Bilirakis from Florida. And they're fantastic leaders of the caucus, very engaged in the issues. Um, and so we do want to see that number increase and we want to identify um, additional champions in Congress who can help us out on some of these really important issues, both in the prevention side of things and also um, in your community as well, too. So really just encourage members to reach out to their member of Congress and ask them to join the Vision Caucus. Thanks, Sarah. And Congressman Gus Bilirakis helped us kick off our legislative seminar yesterday uh, during our first general session with a, a great note encouraging our members to continue their advocacy efforts um, throughout the pandemic, share their personal stories. Sarah, will you share with us a little bit more 
about the significance of the Vision Caucus and kind of the purpose of the Vision Caucus, why it's important to recruit additional members. Of course. Um, So the caucus is the the main purpose of that. And there's, you know, I kind of joke that there's a caucus for everything these days. (laughs) So um, the Congressional Vision Caucus is one of many that are um, in Capitol Hill just for a number of reasons. And it's really just to help us identify who um, who in Congress we can turn to if there's a if there's a bill that we want to push, if there's some funding that we want to see increased, um, even if there's just a way for them to work together to really, um, you know, bring that legislative, that public policy voice to Vision and Eye Health. Uh, one such example that I can think of is that Prevent Blindness partnered with the Global Coalition on Aging in, I want to say, late 2019. Um, possibly, I have to think about that, it's been a while, um, to just have a congressional roundtable about the role of vision loss and eye disease in aging processes and how, um, you know, how we can really encourage older Americans to prioritize their vision health and make sure that they get access to the care that they need and um, understand exactly how to, um, you know, how to balance their eye health among other conditions that might be, they might be facing um, as they, you know, advance in their years. Um, one major aspect of that particular roundtable was um, how to make communities a little bit more livable for those who do have vision loss, for those who are living with blindness, uh, whether it's to a, a high degree or a low degree, and really just um, you know putting that on congressional uh, legislators' radars about you know these are things that we're talking about. There's ways that you can help us achieve some of these policy goals, and really just to keep them engaged in um, in what we're working on together. Um, from an advocate perspective, I mean, that was just a pretty broad overview from an organizational perspective about the utility of the caucus. From an advocate's perspective, it's really a great way, you know, because policy takes a really long time to put together to realize, you know, having um, your member serve on the Vision Caucus is really just a great way to, you know, to, to help give them something to do while they're still waiting for these processes to play out internally. So having somebody on the caucus and, um, you know, just asking your member to um, align with your interests in this one respect, this is one really great way to do that. So, um, you know, even having individuals reach out and say, I noticed that my member of Congress is not on the Vision Caucus. I would really love uh, to see them take this issue on and really prioritize vision, um, you know, as a member. Um, You know, that's a really great way for a member to just say, you know, this is this is one way that I can help, you know, even as, like I said, policy continues to take a long time and you know, just on a closing note on that aspect, there's always strength in numbers and caucuses are a great way to demonstrate that. Thanks, Sarah. Well, at this point, uh, I'd like to ask our Zoom host to open it up for some, some brief Q&A if folks don't mind. And we'll see what questions are on the minds of some of our ACB members. Greg, you may unmute. Hello, everybody. Um, so I'm very interested in this topic of the cash cliff. And uh, I wonder if there's a certain, uh, I personally receive um, SSDI benefits, but uh, am worried about going back to work as uh, I may earn too much money and uh, then worried about um, getting Social Security back in, in the volatile job market that this world is now. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in um, the cash cliff, and I wonder if there's any current bills in Congress that are working on the cash cliff, and if you could talk a little bit more about that, anyone who knows anything about This is my first time 
learning about that terminology of the cash cliff. So uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Greg. And uh, first I'll turn to Rick Webster. Yeah, Greg, thanks for the question. I wish there was legislation. We Congress, the 117th Congress just began, so there's still plenty of time. But the challenge with this issue is really it's a, it's a critical issue, but a subset of larger issues around entitlement programs. And really the focus on SDSDI usually comes around when Congress has to look at rebalancing that trust fund and the old age and survivors insurance trust fund. And they sort of move money back and forth to make sure each trust fund is, is solvent and can pay out the benefits. Sadly, that's usually when the, the tax rating committees that have jurisdiction over SSDI even pay attention to the program. Um, you will hear members of Congress in both chambers talk about wanting to, you know, tackle this issue of the cash cliff and understanding that it's holding people back who are able to work and, but who, you know, were in the workplace for a number of years, uh, then were, became blind, you know, lost their vision in our case. And uh, so they're, they're able to collect SSDI benefits, but are able to work, but then it, it just holds them back. And, and we wish it were so simple as to maybe give them a five or 10% raise to sort of work them off of. It's not that simple if you do the math. So, through the benefit offset, the idea is a person would simply be reducing the, the SSDI benefit as they increase their income, but not simply lose all of that monthly benefit from the federal government as they're looking to increase their hours, you know, have additional promotions. It's a pretty, um, it's a supported concept, uh, but the challenge is, again, it doesn't usually arise unless it's part of some larger entitlement reform conversation, so... Wish there were bills introduced. We'd like to see it. Thanks, Rick. And this ties into what one of our presenters yesterday on our uh, vocational rehabilitation panel was discussing. Uh, discussing, excuse me. He's not discussing, <laughs> but was talking about. How about that? Uh, Kelly Buckland, the soon to be retiring executive director of National Council on Independent Living, was highlighting the, uh, the disincentives for. Uh, pursuing pursuing work. And I think this certainly falls into that category. Just quickly, I want to turn to John Perret, because John, you mentioned the look back for overpayments. Do you see that as a, a discrete issue or one that's connected to this question of the cash cliff as well? The, uh, well, maybe can I answer two things? One, sure. I think it's a great idea, not connected, maybe that directly. I don't see them connected, except for that they have to do with Social Security uh, that there is these three things that really need to be fixed with regards to blind people in terms of the waiting period, the, the phase out, and and sort of the reach back. As far as the phase out, remember that the SSI has a two for one phase out. It's kind of a complicated formula, but generally speaking, there is a two for one phase out in SSI. Let's just move that over to SSDI. There's also a concept of blind work expenses in SSI that doesn't exist in SSDI. It's more generous. We should move that over too. So really, it's just it's just putting the same principles that are already applied in the SSI program over to the SSDI. There has been legislation in the past and certainly uh, hope to have legislation in the 117th Congress. Great. Okay. Ready for our next question? Okay. Ray, you may unmute. 
Yeah. Um, thank you, Sheila, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I've got um, a couple of uh, quick questions. Uh, one would be to Rick, and that would be, there's a lot of talk, of course, about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Uh, is that something of concern to NIB and its associated agencies? Um, I know you pay competitive wages right now. Uh, is that something that uh, you're looking at? And, uh, you know, what are your concerns with that, if any? And second of all, uh, regarding Social Security, um, how do we make a justification for dealing with the cash cliff when it seems that all we hear is that Social Security is going to be bankrupt in, you know, 10, 15, 20, whatever the latest number is that people are saying. Just be curious to hear your uh, answers to those. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ray. Rick? Uh, so, Ray, um, remind me the first question. I got focused on your second. Uh, okay. Yep. It was first about, question was um, on the $15 minimum wage. Yeah. Minimum wage? yeah. Here's the reality. We have agencies in, in about a dozen states, maybe 10 states, that already have state-level laws to either they're already at 15 or moving toward 15. Um, it's going to be phased in over five years. Right now, our average wage is $13. And frankly, it's much higher on the services side. And it's lower than that on the manufacturing side, the production side. Uh, I, I will just tell you the optics politically, we would never fight a $15 minimum wage. Uh, mm -hmm. we, would just, we would be clobbered. And uh, we're, we're neutral on that. I think we have some agencies that just see the reality is it's, it's, you know, they're either there in California or, or getting there or state of Washington or Florida or Maryland. Um, my my home state, Illinois. Yeah, we, Illinois has it. There are a number of states. We're not going to fight it. And uh, we're, you know, we're just working to help our agency employees be more productive, more efficient, want to help continue to raise their wages. That's what we're all about. Not just pay them a fair wage, a competitive wage, but continue to be able to raise those wages. So... And, it, and as a part of it, I'll just mention in the Raise the Wage Act and, and even in the, the language that currently is in the, uh, the, the stimulus package, it would eliminate 14C. So they're tied together. And I said you know, earlier very strongly, we want to eliminate 14C. Just be done with it. So, And as far as solvency for the trust funds, um, as I sort of peek over the horizon toward retirement, I think about that. There's two too large, well, one's much larger than the other, the old age and survivor's insurance trust fund, Congress is going to have to grapple with this. It's going to have to make changes either to, you know, if is it is it means testing? Is it higher taxes? What is it going to be that's going to provide that backstop for Americans, you know, fulfilling that promise to Americans for decades to come? And uh, be interesting to see if uh, this new administration wants to dip its toe in the water about entitlement and entitlements and uh, solvency. So, and I would just say the SSDI trust fund is solvent for the next sixty to sixty-five years. So they shift things back and forth between the trust funds, but the DI one is okay. Eventually, somebody's going to have to stand up and say, "Yeah, we've got to increase the withholding for these, or we've got a means test or something." But right now, DI is. Okay. Yeah, they solved it for now. You're right, Eve. And because also the numbers have sort of plateaued Down. and have dropped, and that's another reason for that. So, yeah, they take care of one trust fund, but the other one uh, needs addressing for sure. 
Melissa, you may unmute. Hello. I was just uh, wondering what the name of the Stop Stop Weight Coalition website would be if you happen to have it. Uh, it'll hopefully be up tomorrow, and it's called StopTheWaitNow.org. And okay, we will be sure to share that with our ACB members. Charlene? My question really, I don't think probably anyone can answer, but i like to put it out there. I have long, long wondered why this country cannot have a health care system such as what is done in Germany and even in Britain, where you have a national health service. Everyone can go to the doctor whenever they want. If you work, you are required to be in some kind of an insurance plan. You can choose to be in one or you can be in the general one. Uh, taxes, I understand, I realize, because I lived in Germany for several years uh, are higher, but we don't, they don't have all these problems that we have in this country with who gets what benefit and whatever. I was blind. I, uh, even as an, um, an alien, n- not a citizen, I was entitled to health care. I was entitled to free health care. Uh, I was entitled to free prescriptions and, I've just wondered if anybody has any idea why we have never been able to do this in this country. Thanks. Oops. No. All right. Would anyone like to tackle that one? (laughs) This is Sarah Brown with Prevent Blindness. I am not sure where to start because I think we all kind of, you know, bash our heads against the wall every once in a while when some sort of new complex policy that affects our national health care system you know, arises in Congress, you know, even as we were just talking about, you know, the solvency of the Medicare trust fund, I was debating on my end of things, if I should jump in and mention that, you know, that has to do with the Medicare part A side of things, which is the trust fund that doesn't necessarily impact part B, which is the premiums and the physician services. Um, And there's also two other parts, part C and part D Um, that only, I mean, I think that's probably a good illustration of, um, you know, just everything and maybe possibly a microcosm of just our system. Um, I think from my perspective and just some things that I have observed is, you know, administrative costs for healthcare is a big driver of some spending um, issues. Um, I think that's only one side of things. Um, you know, we can't even get our healthcare systems to talk to each other. So, you know, to use a, uh, an analogy that a colleague of mine used to say all the time, who was a particular expert in healthcare um, information technology, you know, if you go to Jiffy Loop, they can tell you the last time you got your car serviced and what kind of services you got and et cetera, et cetera. But there's no way to tell that information from a patient perspective. So it's really difficult to know what to tell your doctor in terms of what you've had, what kind of medications you've had, who is your doctor, et cetera. Um, I mean, it's such a multifaceted uh, question. And I mean, it is, it is frustrating. Um, I will say, you know, without getting too much into it, the politics of, you know, heading in that direction um, really is, I mean, it really is, it causes a lot of inertia with this kind of, um, you know, policy debate. And so I think that's probably one of the biggest 
um, you know, biggest sticks in the wheel right now is just, you know, the politics of just making those decisions. Um, I will say too, just on a final note, one particular article that I was reading, um, and this is just anecdotal, um, was that the COVID-19 pandemic and just how difficult it's been to get vaccines and get the care you need, et cetera, et cetera, and just the costs that are associated with everything um, is really starting to turn a lot of minds towards, at least from the consumer side of things, toward a national healthcare system of some kind. Um, but I think everything is just going to be very incremental um, just until, you know, some of these bigger ideas, you know, come to fruition probably 100 years from now. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Thanks, Sarah. And Paul, I, I want to turn to you really quick. It, just to talk from a politics and advocacy perspective, uh, our questioner was asking about some pretty big changes. A lot of time from policy perspectives, we're nibbling around the edges trying to make incremental improvements. Um, Just in your experience, what sort of effort or undertaking would be involved politically to make a change like that to the American system? (laughs) You know, obviously there's a lot of interest in trying to shift our healthcare priorities and supports. I mean, you know, it's a huge topic of debate and conversation at the national level. I will tell you from the, from the blindness system perspective, um, we have engaged both times that there were significant changes proposed in, in the way our healthcare system is structured over the, the last uh, in in my time, which is now getting to be kind of long in the, in the DC run. So back in 94, 93, 94, in the early days of the Clinton administration and back in 2009 and 10 in the efforts that led to the Affordable Care Act, both instances we were, this isn't directly re- addressing her, her question, but we were trying to change some of the systems so that supports could be more easily provided through Medicare, for example, or through a restructured healthcare program for services needed by uh, people who are blind, especially seniors uh, who are blind. And, and of course, ACB has continued to pick up that work in trying to shift Medicare priorities, for example. But, you know, this is, look, I think there's a lot of people interested in making this kind of change. And the disability community is, is probably got one of the best messages to convey about the challenge of the way we currently construct healthcare uh, the hoops we make people go through, the fact that we really don't have a system that supports health. It's a, you know, it's a disease care system. I mean, I could tick off all the Bernie Sanders, and he's right, all of the things that he advocates and all of the criticisms of our currently current system that are there. Um, but, I, but I will say just from our standpoint, uh, even trying to shift the, the, the mammoth systems that we have toward services that would be usable and useful for people who are blind has not been easy. Um, and so trying to, trying to make the larger changes is, is of course, you know, hugely challenging, huge budget challenges, huge, huge expense challenges. And I think we heard a lot of that during the debates, particularly in the democratic primaries uh, where that topic was heavily covered in the 2020 presidential race. All right, Sheila, I think we have time for one more question. Okay. Tom, you may unmute. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My, uh, I have a comment and a question uh, about going back to accessible voting. Uh, I enjoy, I go, I enjoy, I do enjoy going to the polling places and voting, and I've never had a problem since I've been blind, except for one time. But that got fixed quite quickly. They didn't 
I went tried to do early voting and they didn't know what to do with me, but they got that fixed. Anyway, a lot of my friends are ex-military. A lot of my friends have worked overseas. Their question to me is, why isn't the blind community have access to the same overseas website that active overseas military and people that work overseas? Why don't we have access to that website to vote and just send it in as an email as they do? Thank you. Eve, would you like to begin with that one? Not, to, not directly <laughs> related to that. stop the wait, but <laughs> you've been no, no. Sure. I do a lot of accessible voting litigation, uh, and um, yeah, that's an excellent question that I have asked many, 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 many times. And our biggest argument in many cases is: look, you can't tell me that it is an undue burden or fundamental alteration to let blind people vote electronically when you let. Military voters vote electronically. We are not less secure than the military voters, nor are we less secure than the people who voted from the space station. <laughs> Legally, you are perfectly correct. We should at least be able to do what the Uokava voters, the military voters do. The problem has been the, that the military voting systems are also not accessible. They're electronic, but they're not accessible. So, you know, <laughs> yes, it's a very good argument. There's no real legal response. Uh, and so we continue to make that argument. <laughs> and John, is there anything that you would like to add on this topic? Well, one, so neither ACB nor NFB, and, and we're not trying to eliminate your option to vote in person. Correct. We want to make sure actually that that you have that option and that you, uh, that we have, have plenty of machines to make sure that we can do so privately, independently, and preserve a secret ballot. And otherwise, uh, as, Eve, as Eve indicated, we're perplexed about why <laughs> there's so much pushback about something that seems so reasonable. Yes. And uh, to be frank, we support a, a full catalog of voting options. Some may work better for folks with mobility or dexterity impairments. Others may work better for folks with vision loss. And we want voters to be able to choose the voting method that best meets their needs. And for our uh, questioner, Tom, I'll also point out on our panel yesterday with local election officials, Amelia Powers Gardner from Utah County, Utah, uh, pointed out that the Uakava statute and the, the local carve out in the state of Utah for that statute is what gave her the ability in her county to expand access to voters with disabilities. Uh, this has also been a successful provision when getting legislation passed in the state of West Virginia or pursuing uh, legal actions and preliminary injunctions in several states like North Carolina. Yep. Um, so, it, so it is a useful uh, quiver or a useful arrow in our quiver, but it is not a, a one-size-fits-all solution as the, the voting systems in all states and many localities are designed differently. So it's, it's a great question and something that we all need to keep in mind. And at this point, I'd like to thank our panelists for joining us here today. 
Uh, thank you so much for sharing your priorities in the 117th Congress. We look forward to working with you and collaborating on these issues and hopefully share our joint success with our ACB members in the future. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Clark. Hey, Clark, everyone. And Rick Morin, at this point, uh, now that we've concluded Q&A, I'd like to queue up the video from the American Foundation for the Blind. Uh, no sense having our panelists stick around while a video plays of another organization's priorities. Hello, ACB members. I'm Sarah Miller, Senior Advisor for Public Policy and Research at the American Foundation for the Blind. Um, I apologize that I couldn't be there live today. Um, and I know that Stephanie Inert, Chief Public Policy and Research Officer, um, also sends her best regards. Thank you for the opportunity to speak um, and for this chance to talk a little bit about some of our policy work. Um, it's always a pleasure to join you. As you may know, over the last year, AFB has shifted um, to focusing on COVID work. Um, our research has really informed our policy priorities in this area. Um, and so I want to extend a thank you to ACB um, and to any attendees uh, today who may have shared or participated in the Flatten and Accessibility or Access and Engagement Research Studies. Um, we've released two reports so far, and we've got a third forthcoming. Um, Flatten and Accessibility was our first um, COVID survey uh, that looked at adult experiences early in the pandemic, and it had over 1,900 participants. Access and Engagement looked at student and professional experiences and had over 1,400 participants. The second round of A&E is still being analyzed, um, and we hope to have a third uh, round later this spring. Because of the thousands of participants, we have an extraordinary amount of data that we haven't had before about a wide array of blind and low vision educational and daily experiences. We're still working on further analysis and publications, and these should provide a better understanding of the communal experiences um, and the needs of the community. Very little of the data is surprising. COVID's created some new barriers, but more than anything, it has magnified the barriers that we've known about for years, from difficulties with transportation, technology and accessibility, lack of attention to the unique needs of people with disabilities, and fear of discrimination. Here are just a couple of the findings um, that really have been informing our policy work. First, 68% of respondents were concerned about transportation. Um, some of the top concerns were uh, safety when using transportation services, concern that the respondent would not be able to get themselves or a family member to a test center or health facility, um, and concern that transportation services have been or will be cut in their community. Um, a second uh, big issue in 2020 um, was voting. Although 91% of the adult participants said they were registered to vote, 39% were unsure if they had an accessible voting system, and 23% reported that they did not have an accessible system. In education, 43% of students attending online had difficulty or were unable to access online programs because of their visual impairment. Also, students had schools tools at school that they did not have access to at home. There were also bright spots, of course. For example, we learned how better communication between families and teachers may improve services to blind kids and how the pandemic may um, create opportunities for more communication and open doors to engaging families um, in the services that children are receiving. We are continuing to use this data to advocate for appropriate COVID response policies. Here's a few of those priorities. We're in a place where we're shifting from 
emergency responses to considering the effect of the pandemic and its societal and the societal changes um, that are going to come out of it um, and in the so-called new normal. For example, we're using the experiences of COVID to push for more accessibility and usability in educational technology. Now that schools have uh, used technology for 100% of instruction, we know that teachers will inevitably adopt different tools in normal in-person classroom practice. We want to be sure that these tools um, do better with accessibility going forward than they have so far. We'll also be paying attention to similar challenges um, in ongoing disparities in broadband and device availability, telehealth accessibility, and the accessibility of the job search. Um, one data point from our surveys was that one in five respondents um, who had used telehealth found it to be inaccessible. Um, and that's pretty significant when, when, so many tele, when so many healthcare services are moving online. We can't talk about COVID in education though without paying attention to learning loss and the return to school. We'll be working with partners on creating a path to restoring learning opportunities for blind and low vision children. Um, at the end of last year, 13% of students um, did not receive educational services during the COVID-19 pandemic. 61% had attended school online. Um, and with the data point that I gave earlier, 43% um, attending online, um, having difficulty accessing online programs because of their visual impairment. Um, we know that there, there, there are gaps in the instruction that, that students have had over the last year. And time without instruction can mean that students miss not only opportunities for academic learning, um, but access the expanded core curriculum um, and services like orientation and mobility. Students will need ongoing evaluation and potentially revisions of their IEPs, and in some cases, extended school years to make up for lost learning. All of these are gonna take staffing, guidance, coordination, and funding, and we'll keep pushing to make sure that those are available to students. Another big COVID priority is of course vaccines. We're advocating for the removal of transportation barriers to accessing COVID-19 testing and vaccines. With an understandable um, focus on the distribution challenges, states have largely not prioritized getting people to the vaccine yet. And we'd like to see better partnerships um, for transportation to those um, sites, as well as establishing more mobile vaccines. We know that um, there are other barriers, lack of information, the need to arrive in a vehicle to, to a drive through facility, um, a lack of existing transportation infrastructure. There's legitimate fear about using shared vehicles. There's a dependence on family and friends and ongoing healthcare discrimination, all of which make it harder for people to get access to the vaccines that they need. We know that there are bright spots. Congress has allocated transit relief funding um, that can be used to fill gaps in vaccine access. Um, and FEMA's public assistance program is working um, to secure 15 mobile vaccination units. But with so many transit deserts, um, many more units um, and many more solutions will be needed to bring resources to these communities. Of course, we're always looking beyond COVID to create a world of no limits for uh, the blind and low vision community. COVID-19 will eventually become an endemic, not a pandemic disease, and we want to strive for the best possible world that we can imagine. Uh, we're continuing research projects on technology in the workplace, guide dog usage, and medical accessibility that may shape our policy work in the years to come. Um, we're continuing a focus that we started a few years ago on transportation um, that seeks to remove significant barriers um, to independent living for older adults and to employment. Alongside AF ACB, we are working with members of Congress to pass the Disability Access to Transportation Act and the Surface Transportation Reauthorization Bill. 
We're calling for more transit operations funding to prevent significant long-term cuts to transit um, that might come out of COVID. Um, and we're always attentive to ensuring autonomous vehicles will be accessible. A couple other priorities, of course, are finally securing uh, the adoption of website accessibility regulations by the Department of Justice that we hope will have a ripple effect for digital inclusion. Um, and additionally, we support community-wide efforts to pass the Transformation to Competitive Employment Act and support policies to improve access to competitive integrated employment. AFP continues to work with new partners to expand pathways to the workforce, and our policy priorities will follow from the direction we ultimately pr pursue for better workforce programs. It is always a pleasure to speak with the members of ACB. The partnership between ACB and NFB is really important to us, and we look forward to mutually supporting our policy objectives in the coming year. On behalf of AFB, we all wish you the best of luck with your advocacy meetings this week, and thank you for the opportunity to join you today. All right. Thank you to the American Foundation for the Blind uh, for sharing that message with us and our members. So, folks, here we are towards the end of day two of the legislative seminar. Uh, we will have another session beginning here shortly. Just as an overview, if there are any lingering questions about the legislative imperatives, as well as scheduling meetings or what to do in meetings with your members of Congress. Uh, so please stay tuned for that. And just to recap, the American Council of the Blind legislative imperatives for this year, the message that we'll be carrying to our policymakers here in the coming days include, as AFB noted, the Disability Access to Transportation Act, creating a paratransit pilot program um, to include to increase the usability of paratransit services, as well as increase grant funding for transportation programs and provide a more accessible complaint process at the Department of Transportation and complete, much like uh, Sachin Pavithran, the executive director of the U.S. Access Board mentioned this morning, but requiring a completion of the public rights-of-way accessibility guidelines. One of our other legislative imperatives is the reintroduction and passage of the Medicare Demonstration of Coverage for Low Vision Devices Act, which would create a five-year pilot demonstration program for the coverage of demonstration program for the coverage of expensive and costly low vision devices through, uh, through Medicare. This bill is funded at $2.5 million a year for five years, or $12.5 million total. And the purpose of this legislation is to have data points for research so that we can show the benefits of covering low vision devices for individuals experiencing vision loss, our older members and the older population who are losing vision but still want to live independently and in the community. Uh, this bill, once passed, will help provide that data so that we can go back to Congress for a more full-throated endorsement of low vision device coverage. And our final legislative imperative for 2021 is the Exercise and Fitness for All Act. 
creating guidelines and putting in place requirements for accessible exercise and fitness equipment to go along with the accessibility guidelines that already exist for the public places of accommodation like gyms and fitness centers and also to provide uh, accessible services and training in those facilities as well. But as you just heard from our national uh, blindness partners, this is only a fraction of the work that we will be doing uh, this year and the work that we will be reaching out to our members for support to help us push forward. So as we schedule these meetings, as we champion these legislative imperatives, uh, this is not meant to be a a one-time meeting, a one-time phone call with staff and our members of Congress, but this is either the beginning or the continuation of building a relationship, uh, becoming a trusted resource for the staff and our members of Congress so that when there are issues that impact the blindness community, they know that they can reach out to ACB and our members. And when there are issues facing you all in your local communities, at your affiliate level, or us as the American Council of the Blind, we know that we have trusted partners that we can reach out to, to express the impact of these issues, and of course, share our personal stories to illustrate to them and paint a picture on the impact of these policies. And as I stated earlier today, the the legislative imperatives, as well as the one-pager that you can leave behind with your members as you have these meetings, those are available on the ACB website for the DC Leadership Meetings, as well as the Legislative Seminar. Also available on the website and being shared over the ACB Leadership and President's List is the Hill Feedback Form. And we strongly encourage all affiliates to complete one feedback form for every meeting that you have so that we have an understanding of how receptive to these issues the staff and the offices with whom you spoke are, but also to give us a sense of what other issues they are interested in and that we should bring to them as they arise later this year. Uh, the Hill feedback form you can find on the website and you can email it to us at advocacy at acb.org and the legislative imperative one pager also available on the website. We strongly recommend emailing that a copy of that to the staff or the member with whom you're arranging these meetings, either in advance of the meeting or as a great excuse to send that thank you and follow up email. Um, once your meeting occurs. Once again, I would like to thank our sponsors for the DC Leadership Meetings and Legislative Seminar, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Vespero, and Vanda Pharmaceutical. I'd like to thank all of our partners, the National Blindness Organizations with whom we just spoke, the folks from the Uh, Department of Health and Human Services and Federal Communications Commission, the U.S. Access Board, the Department of Transportation, and the Election Assistance Commission, our partners striving to improve accessibility in government services, as well as regulations for 
uh, the private sector. And speaking of the private sector, uh, a big thank you to our partners, the, the airline industry, the autonomous vehicle industry, uh, as well as communications and broadband companies like Verizon and Comcast, from whom we heard today, uh, the, the Item Coalition, and oh, uh, just everyone else that I might have missed. There's so many. Again, we've had more than you know, 45 invited guest speakers on the uh, soon-to-be 18 sessions that we've conducted over these two days. So I don't want to leave anyone out, but a big thank you to everyone for making this possible. Uh, We'll stick around for another hour to answer any questions about the imperatives and Hill meetings. And then please carry these imperatives, share your personal stories, and build relationships with our congressional representatives and their staff. So at this time, I would just like to say thank you, everyone. And as always, keep advocating. And Clark, this is Dan. I just have to say a a final, as we move into our tricks and tips, thank you so much for just an amazing, uh, enlightening, productive, and collaborative two days. Really, it was fostering voice choice and community. So thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. And I look forward to next year when we can go back to one day in person. Uh, <laughs> I, I understand. I understand. No, we, we all know that, that. I'm sure it will be a hybrid, sir. Yeah, we all know that won't happen. <laughs> Cindy pointed it out today. What an impact building community and being able to, to reach people through modern technology and ACB radio and have all this content archived as podcasts. Um, it's there's there's no going back and we at ACB are flexible and innovative innovative enough to meet that challenge and the collaboration and the expertise in in the last panel with all of our community partners was just just sensational yeah that was great and it it really highlights all the various ways that uh, our organizations work together there might be an issue where Someone, one organization is at the tip of the spear uh, just because there are, as we heard, there were even questions about issues not pertaining to uh, areas of focus. Uh, there are so many issues that we could be focusing on, right? And it's, it's too much for one organization to be at the vanguard on every issue. So that's why it's important for us to build coalitions and work collaboratively with these other organizations so that we can try to accomplish as much as possible. I completely agree, and I love the the whole idea of you know reaching out to your representatives and your senators here over the next few days and asking them if they're a member of the Vision Caucus and if they'd like to join or like more information about that. What a what a what a you know just a, a great just basic suggestion. You know that's a that's a very easy ask. Absolutely. So. Is the idea here then for us to be kind of an open communications channel here for people to call in and ask their questions? Yep, I think that's our intent. I think we still have our our Zoom host. You do, um, Clark. You still Thank stuck you. with me. Thank well, you so and, much, and, Sheila. And I guess, uh, well, let's start. Uh, Sheila, before we open it up, how, in both you and Dan, actually, I know Debbie Grubb has been arranging meetings for the Florida Council of the Blind. Are you all set for these, these next few days? We're, we're pretty together, yes. We have four teams, and there's an average of 
five per team, I think, um, give or take. And Debbie, I believe, has all of our appointments scheduled. My team has two tomorrow. Dan is on a separate team from me. Um, but it's it's looking really good for Florida. I am so proud. So, yeah, I think it's really going to be exciting. And uh, we're we're getting together what tomorrow morning at nine o'clock mm-hmm. just to kind of powwow mm-hmm. and make mm-hmm. sure you know everybody, especially for the newer folks, they're feeling comfortable. And uh, we've kind of got a couple of seasoned folks with a few newbies in the, each you know, on each team. So. I think that will make hopefully make everybody comfortable. And as you're saying, kind of spread the load around where one person doesn't have to do all the talking. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's very it's it's very exciting for me because, like I said, we do well. Like Dan just said, um, you know, each team's got two at least two seasoned members and then a few new. So this will be exciting for all of us. And and if Debbie's listening, I'd love for her to call in and just share with us, you know, um, how she felt the whole process this year of of making appointments, and if you know the the pandemic had much of an impact on the ability to schedule, and did they all come in the last three days, or have people been receptive throughout the you know the last couple of weeks? So it would you know be interesting for for us to hear that feedback from from a lot of our affiliates out there and. And how yeah. they're fighting the process. Yeah. So we do have some hands raised. So Christine, you may go ahead. Um, I was just curious, since Barbara Romando wasn't here today to talk with us, uh, I would presume that she'd be talking about Cogswell Macy. And I was just wondering, where is that right now? And what's happening with it? Has sure, anybody... Somebody- Yep. So Barbara Raimondo, along with Mark Reichert and the Cogswell Macy Steering Committee, held a kickoff event last Tuesday, and that was actually streamed over ACB radio as well. Um, they had, I think, around 200. I was going to say around 200 people participated. Yeah, 200, yeah. over 200 attendees on yeah. that kickoff event. Their uh their Hill meetings are this week as well, I, I believe tomorrow, much like Prevent Blindness. So it could be that Barbara just got wrapped up in, in preparations for that event. So we are looking for bipartisan reintroduction of the Cogswell-Macy Act in both the House and the Senate, trying to build up those co-sponsors. Uh, ACB is a member of the Cogswell-Macy Steering Committee, so we will have more information to our members about this legislation. And the, the plan for Cogswell Macy, and I guess the, the strategy is the same as it's been all along, that when the Individual uh, Disability Education Act, or IDEA, is up for reauthorization, and I guess to rephrase, it, it is up for reauthorization, <laughs> but once they get around to actually reauthorizing, and they being Congress, gets around to reauthorizing IDEA, We want to have the Cogswell-Macy Act there and ready with bipartisan support so that they can uh, select language from Cogswell-Macy to be included in the broader IDEA reauthorization. And And Chris, I was just going to ask you after you're done with your thought, how how are things going from Pennsylvania, if you could share um, that with us? I have... You know, we divided ourselves into three groups, and I have five of my six people scheduled. I haven't checked with the other two uh, groups to see how many they got scheduled. 
Uh, and then we we're doing our senators separately. So I haven't I haven't gotten an answer on the on and, the on the senators yet. And Chris, over how many days are your meetings scheduled? Right now, I have them as of um, tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday. And some of them may go into ne- next week. I would presume. I think some of them will for some of the other people. And the other thing I wanted to ask is that um, is that um, kickoff already podcasted so I can listen to it. I was doing other things last week. I will have to check on that with our folks at ACB radio. Uh, But if it is podcasted, we'll be sure to share that. Okay. Yeah. So I, we're, I'm starting, I think at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning with my first zoomy. Great. And I, how, did, I just how heard, did you like the um, how did you like the weekend and in uh, the how did how how did the the event go for you guys? I'm tired. Yeah, <laughs> we feel your pain from that standpoint. Yeah, <laughs> it's good we're not walking on Capitol Hill because they might have to push me in a cart. Yeah. Well, you know, but those ten thousand steps were good on Capitol Hill. That's, that's the only time I ever get ten thousand steps in. You know? Well, that that is true. It does. After sitting around the hotel for a few days, you're re- you're like a caged animal. Ready to go 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 do some walking that's true and dan and chris i did just receive word that in addition to the uh, downloadable word document for the hill feedback form it is now available as a survey monkey uh, that you can complete online as well and then just click submit so if folks find it easier to complete the hill feedback form that way you can either complete it online or you can download it and complete it as a document and then email it to us. And if you okay. can make them, they probably already thought of this, Clark, but make sure that people can, can answer the survey more than one time because many of us will be seeing more than one representative. And, and Kelly Gask is sitting right here in the room with me, and she said that is already done. So check. Good job. Hey, all right. Good job, Kelly. All right. Melanie. You may go. Hello. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Yes. Great. Thank you so much. I had just stepped away from my phone, so I had to <laughs> run back. This has been um, a really wonderful weekend. I'm, I've enjoyed all of the sessions and had a really hard time today picking which one to go, ones mm. to go to this afternoon. So thank you. Um, and I'm, I'm doing this in a whole new state this year. So I am um, really looking forward to trying to get, I haven't got my meetings yet. So, um, but I'm working on it and I'm looking forward to getting meetings with offices I've never uh, worked with before. So it'll be interesting. But I do have a question. Um, do we have a list of the people the members of Congress who are currently members of the Vision Caucus? And is anybody working to try specifically to get um, new freshman members of Congress interested in vision issues? I know that in the past couple of years, there's been um, a fairly large freshman class each mm-hmm. time um, after the last two congressional elections. And I was just curious as to whether um, the Vision Caucus 
um, has, if you know, if they have perhaps made an effort to reach out to those new members specifically um, to see if they can interest them in joining. Thanks. Yeah. So those, and hang on, Melly, because I want to ask you some questions as well. Uh, Okay. With, uh, with the Vision Caucus, they should have a website, and we can look for that and link to it as I look in Kelly Gask's direction. Um, we, the royal we. <laughs> hey, Kelly. <laughs> yes. And, I use uh, that we a lot. Yes. And link, to it, <laughs> yeah. link to it from the, the event website. Uh, but your question about the reaching out to freshman members I think that really goes into what we're working with Prevent Blindness now on recruiting members for the Vision Caucus Mm -hmm. so that we can use the Vision Caucus um, as a means of reaching out and sharing information broadly with those members. Um, so that so that's my answer on with, with that regard. To your point about it being difficult to choose which sessions to attend today, <laughs> and if you were like uh, many of us here at the in the ACB National Office, you had your I, I don't want to say her name, um, but your Echo device playing live stream and ACB Link playing mainstream, so that you could keep one ear to both sessions as they were going. But the, the great folks at ACB Radio will be getting these sessions set up as podcasts. Outstanding. Uh, it's it's I was also hoping you'd available say that. on social media, uh, the Facebook and YouTube live videos. So we do have this content archived for later viewing and enjoyment. And I was hoping I, you'd I, say I, that. Thanks. And then, Melanie, one question for you. Uh, so you are in a new state, you're setting up meetings with your state affiliate, but I'm curious if your special interest affiliate is doing any meetings as well, uh, specifically Guide Dog Users Incorporated. Well, I, I haven't, you know, specifically talked to them about it, but I do know that there are several people who are participating who are a member of my special interest affiliate as well as other state affiliates. So, um, and uh, so, yes, I'm, I'm sure that both the interests of guide dog users and uh, the state affiliates will be um, on the minds of all of our members as we, as we talk to our officials, because there are some service animals slash guide dog uh, issues that we, um, we have concerns about and you thank you very much for the panels yesterday where those were discussed because a number of things came out of those panels that um, I think some of us will be uh, wanting to talk to uh, both the federal agencies about uh, some more and members of Congress as we, as we move forward into this year. Great. Thank you so much, Melanie. Thank you. Leslie. Thank you, Clark. Great, great weekend. I I echo everybody else. I think the Spoon household is tired. (laughs) (laughs) But a great, great weekend um, getting ready to walk on Capitol Hill. I've actually still been working out. I don't know about Dan, where he's been. He said, you know, know, I'm not quite sure, but... um, I just wanted to ask you one quick question about the exercise bill. Um, 
are those senators and the representatives still involved? Are they still, you know, is it, could we reference them? I looked at the, I looked at it on the website last night and there's like five of them. And mm-hmm. I didn't know if they're still, are they still co-sponsoring? Um, I know it'll be a new, new bill numbers, but <clears throat> will they still be, are they still interested? Like, you know, like for the low vision one that you still mm-hmm. have Maloney and Gus Filaracas. So that's yeah. what I was wondering. Yeah, so that is our understanding, and the the primary office in the in the Senate is Senator Duckworth um, from okay. Illinois, and uh, the Senate is a little bit behind this year. They've been uh, a little bit distracted with the events yeah. of January. Um, sure. So they it, and as we heard from our our guest Charles Cooper yesterday. There's a lot of nominations at the beginning of a new administration that go through the Senate. So the Senate's a little bit uh, log jammed at the moment. But right. Senator Duckworth's office does plan to reintroduce the Exercise and Fitness for All Act. And uh, I do not have confirmation on reintroduction in the House. But with all of the great work that our members are doing, I'm sure that Congress will hear that this is a priority and they'll know that they must reintroduce the Exercise and Fitness for All Act. But also, Leslie, I hope you're not too tired because there is a community event this evening on and you didn't invite tips and me. Tricks. I was sad. I was very sad and you did not invite me. <laughs> uh, you know, that you were you participated over the summer. We've other ACV members wanna wanna I'm turn as joking. well. So it's Sheila Styron, Jeff Bishop, and Gage Griffith will be leading seat. it. I had to put you on the hot seat sometime today. <laughs> I had talked to you all day, so <laughs> it's no big deal. I taught at three thirty, so I'm good. I, yeah, I'll probably tune in. You know, you and know, I, exercise I'm is near and dear to me. So, and I'm sure they'd love your input on that at that session as well. Yeah. Good luck. Um, great job as usual. Good job to Dan and, and Eric and everybody else too. So great, great, exciting. I miss seeing everybody and I hope, I hope we're in person next year. So keep up the great work. Keep advocating Clark. <laughs> Thanks Leslie. <laughs> All right. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, Clark, I was, and uh, Sheila, I was going to say, I did hear on C-SPAN uh, last week that there were, and I was kind of surprised when they said it, but there were 60 new members of Congress this year, and five, you know, and five representatives from Florida. So you know, more turnover than you realize. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Sheila, you have a, you have another hand back here on the panelist side. I don't know if you saw oh. me. You probably oh. didn't. It's tough to see. No, Larry, I'm, I'm in the attendees. Attendee. Okay. Oh, I got Go you, ahead, Larry. What okay. do you What do you have to say there? It's Larry? It's funny in direct. My experience, and I'm a brand new virgin person in this ter- particular aspect. I've never done this before. In fact, I had some reservations because I hadn't done this before. And Jeff Tom is heading up uh, the CCB effort. And, and uh, he said, no, 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 do it. He said, because he knows me. And I know I, he knows me. I've got a big mouth. And I'm happy to chat and talk and learn. I mean, that's what life is all about. And so I jumped in, not knowing anything really, about what was going to happen. I knew about the imperatives. And all of a sudden, I saw what I love in life as I get older. It's all about structure. It's all about, hey, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it. Here are steps A, B, C, D, E, F, G to do it. We saw the sample letter, and we built teams. And as, by the way, in California, we've got, uh, I think there are 31 or 32 people in Mm -hmm. 15 teams Mm-hmm. And I, 
there are four of us on my team. I am the lead, and I and none of us have done this before on the team. None of us. Oh. And we got together for a role play uh, at the whole meeting. Everybody, and not just the team, but everybody. And then I had a, them. Our team break off into probably we've done five or six meetings since then where we've done role plays and all of us didn't know exactly what we were doing but we traded parts sometimes i was the i was the rep sometimes i was the guy doing part of the imperative because we split it so that not everybody had to do all of them uh and now we have three different three or four different meetings on friday and by the way i think this will be the very first time that 6 30 a.m in the morning that i'm in a suit uh, but I am, and video is up, and so we'll see how that goes. But it's been a it's been a fascinating experience for me, so much so that uh, even if we do it virtually next year, or we happen to to get the chance to go back to Washington D.C., I'd be happy to do it. Oh, that's thanks, great! We're thanks so, for sharing that, Larry. We'd love to see how it all works out for you, Larry. That's wonderful. I've uh, downloaded downloaded the feedback form, sent it to my team, and and you'll see it. That's what I like to hear. And Dan, this really. This really drives home uh, a great point about this year's virtual event, how many new people are getting involved. It's not just the folks that the affiliates can afford to send to D.C. for the leadership training, but we're reaching a lot of new members and getting a lot of new people involved, and everyone's at a a different starting point, Uh, but everyone starts somewhere, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And oh, the I, next person, Dan, is a newbie, too. Yeah? Yeah. Cassandra. You Cassandra, may have She's a new person. second vice president of the Florida Council of the Blind, Cassandra. Cassandra? Cassandra? So, um, there you go. There she <laughs> is. I thought Hi, that was interesting um, that the young lady came on because my question actually was for Rick and for Dan, to tell us about the first time they had to go mm. on the hill and what their experience was. Because I think people um, sometimes, especially new people, although I, when I was in high school, I went to something called Close Up. And so that's exactly what we did. We went and talked to representatives, you know, and, and, and we met the president at that, at that point and um, had a little dinner and ate weird food and all that good stuff. But I thought it would be interesting just to hear, uh, hear what Alexa. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm also cooking dinner, and it decided to go off. Um, to hear, you know, what it was for you guys, um, because you guys have been doing it for a hundred years, and you and you do it all the time, and um, it helps us to know that it's okay to be nervous, and it's okay to to not know what you're doing, and it's okay to you know, to be, um, to, to, you know, to not, to not be able to be perfect. And so I'm going to pick on Dan cause he's my, he's my buddy. And so Dan, could you tell us a little bit about the first time you, um, went on the hill and what it was like for you and, um, you know, some sure. of the, some of the tricks as, as you guys used in the beginning mm-hmm. that help, that help you to, um, to overcome that. And then, um, of course, you know, Rick, I want you to do the same thing. Thank you. Yeah, Clark. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I, I don't know. I've been talking to him all day. <laughs> well, Rick, Rick, Rick is, uh, Rick's our radio. We, we all know Rick. I know. Yeah, we all know Rick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, Clark, well, Wait, what do you mean, not Rick? Come on, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Rick, you can chime in too. You, hey, yeah. hey, everybody, I don't care. Yeah. Sandy, you no, can do it no, too. No, I, don't, I just want to know kind of, you know, what it's like because as a new person doing this, you know, it, you know, we think, oh gosh, we got to fill these big shoes of all these people who've been doing it for a long time, and we need to know sometimes just yeah. that. Thank okay you for to, to be thank us. you for yelling at your Alexa. You shut mine down. Too. That was funny. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, well, uh, Cassandra, I'll I'll go first, and then we'll let Rick and Clark and Sheila g- give you their thoughts too. Um, I think it was a, maybe eleven years ago. Leslie and I did it for the first time, and we had two wonderful mentors, uh, Debbie Grubb and and Paul Edwards. Uh, so the first time we went and. We went over to the Democratic uh, National Headquarters and met a guide uh, who was a friend of Debbie's from Maryland. So that was our first really concern is how the heck are we going to get from office to office? So, uh, you know, after a while, we got a little more comfortable with asking interns and people to help guide us. And and you kind of get to know the buildings a little bit. Um, But we were extremely nervous. I'd say the first two or three sessions, we did more listening than we did talking. We just said hi. <laughs> uh, but what you quickly realize, first of all, most of these folks are between the ages of 25 and 35. <laughs> so they're, you know, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're young folks. Could, could be your, your, your children or your nieces or your nephews. And, uh, and, and so, uh, and you realize they're there, they're very professional. They're there to do a job. This is what they do all day long. And when you, you, you start losing your apprehension, even when you're in the office waiting, because there's two or three other groups waiting around there with you and you realize, oh, they're just people like us. <laughs> and, and what, what really became evident very quickly to Leslie and I is, they really do appreciate the personal stories. They they do really appreciate that you're you're there with a cause and and our stuff is not really controversial. It it truly isn't. It's you know, it's blind people putting putting, you know, legislative imperatives out there to help other blind people. And so um I don't know. I, it, it, it went from being nervous, but that by the end of the first day of doing it, you're like, oh, man, this is, this is fun. This is cool. You kind of build momentum as the day goes along. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, I don't know. Uh, but what have your all Rick, how about experiences? you? I, it's funny. The, the, the first meeting I went to, and I'll never forget this. You know, like, Dan, I was very, very nervous. And I go in and I, I don't remember which representative it was. I, I've done all my work on, on the, on the representative side. But the first thing they did was they offered me a chocolate bar. And I said, Whoa, hey, this is, it just calmed me down like you would not believe. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, I, you know, it, 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 it was really a, a very comfortable thing for us. Like, you know, like Dan said, I was with people that had done it before. So, so I was kind of, you know, in an observe mode and, and, and watching and taking cues from other folks. But it didn't take long before I start to tell my story. And, um, you know, everybody I was with was blind and I was low vision. So I had a unique angle that they didn't have. And um, the, the people were very, very engaged, um, you know, exchanged, uh, you know, business cards at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it just was a, you know, I, I, I mean, you left, I left there just feeling good after every one of these meetings. So, 
um, just be yourself, tell your story, and and that's the real trick to it. It really is. Yeah, and everyone in Florida at least wants to offer you a glass of orange juice. So after about <laughs> three or four appointments, you have to you have to say no because then you're going to have to find the bathrooms. Yeah, in Massachusetts, <laughs> you're lucky if they ask you for if they give you a cup of water. To... <laughs> Can I chime in? Sure. Okay. So mine, you know, I think that what impressed me the most is that uh, one, they were very kind. Uh, mm-hmm. when when they met with us and they saw us as the expert that's how they treated us they we were the expert we we were the ones that knew what we wanted to talk about and they just seemed to be engaged listeners whether they were or not because you know we couldn't read the body language but <laughs> they did true. listen right they did that's i mean hilarious. they were there they gave us the attention <laughs> that we needed and the one that was the most impressive for me was uh representative norm dix he was in in my district and you know went to his office and we actually got to meet with him mm-hmm. which was pretty great and got to go into this big room and sat on a big fluffy couches and Mm -hmm. it was just really just a very and and his assistant came in and offered us a glass of water and just and then they were more than helpful uh with getting us to the the right direction when we left the office and i i think that that's what i recall the most in the beginning times was just how kind uh overall people were whether it was even the office that you were visiting or somebody else that might find you wandering the halls um they're just all people and mm-hmm. you know willing to uh step up for the most part and i'm sure others have had you know some other response but uh, that's how it was for me and i i think that just the reminder that you know when you're going you're going with your story and that is what's so compelling and that's what they'll remember and uh you know so just be genuine and you don't need to make it you don't need to sound like you're an attorney or something like that you just need to be you mm-hmm. and put it in your words because that's what's going to resonate with them mm-hmm. well i will say i was a flipping nervous wreck <laughs> you a couple of years ago you it was unlike you i was you were... oh my gosh i was so nervous and i like dan said you know i, I was fortunate i went with dan and leslie so i was very fortunate and followed their lead and what was so interesting to me was a few of them would say well this is so interesting i wasn't aware that um, you know, my grandmother, my mother has diabetes, and I wasn't aware that this was an issue. And um, my grandmother has macular degeneration, and I, oh my gosh, you know, this could be her. And then um, our last appointment for the day that year was with the uh, representative. What's her name? From oh, Pal, Pal, uh, she got she got defeated this time from uh, South, uh, South Florida. Yeah, uh, the one from Monroe the, County, the yeah. Key West, the Monroe County. Yeah, yeah. But she walked in and she loved Gabriel's dog, and she said, "I don't care what they want, sign it." <laughs> <laughs> and last year it was so cool because half the offices had dogs, so all the dogs were in every office and. Mm-hmm. 
we said, could we, can we pet them? Sure, go ahead. And it was just so comfortable. But last year was a little bit easier, but it's still nerve-wracking. Sheila, do we have another question? Uh, yes, Todd. Guys, uh, Dan and everybody, I really want to thank you all for this uh, wonderful opportunity to be part of this. I didn't hear all of it. Um, uh, I didn't hear uh, um, all the presentation, but I did hear enough. And the fact that you guys, you know, do this, it's quite wonderful. And I hope that the virtual part of it, at least, will continue because that way I can still participate from home as I'm not a very good uh, uh, air traveler myself. Or, you know, I I don't, um, I can't travel unless I travel with somebody. So I just want to say a big thank you and keep up the good work. Oh, and Todd, I, I'm sure from this point forward, our, our leadership conferences will be, will be a hybrid, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you can count on that. So yeah, well, we were glad you were able to participate this week. Yeah. Like I said, I fell asleep through a lot of it and I'm sorry about that, but I did enjoy what I heard. Well, and Todd, I'm sure many of these sessions will probably be replayed in the future on ACB radio, but also they're available as, they will be available as podcasts through ACB radio. So you'll be able to find them. Right. I also understand that, I also understand that ACB radio is going to now become ACB media. At least that's what I heard. Just a new name for it. It's going to be the ACB media network. So. Ah. Yeah, because cause we're doing so much more than just what you would call traditional radio now. It's really uh, you know moving into so many different platforms. Yeah. Okay, but will you be saying that on the uh, on the uh, on the stations? Will you be saying media instead? Uh, of media? Well, you'll have to. We'll have to address that to uh, Debbie and Rick. So I think that will be <laughs> a work in progress over a period of time. You know that won't. That won't happen overnight. Right. And I'm sorry I missed the first session, but I had to sing in uh, I had to sing in a virtual uh, church meeting on Sunday, and uh, you know that's why I missed the first half. But it was you know it, it, it was great what I heard. Well, good. Well, we're glad you enjoyed it, Todd. Thanks for being a part. No problem. All right, Lynn, you may unmute. Sorry, I'm sorry. I couldn't find the unmute button. Sorry about that. No worries. <laughs> well, I'm going to do stay too. Um, so, you know, it, this was, has been really been great. We had meetings. We had teams of uh, each team of five. We had five teams in Washington State, and I was one of them. And um, I got both my appointments, which was amazing. And what I did with one of them, because I wasn't the constituent, I told one of the people on my team, and both people on this particular team had not has not have not done it before. So I kind of have, have been mentoring them and helping them too. But uh, one of them, um, I told them, could you please send a message to the um, legislative staffer? And she did, and she got a call back. So that's how I did it because a lot of times I want to be here, here from the constituents. So I'm actually going to be in one senator and three representative calls. One is my own representative and two are not. So I'm really excited because actually it helped me learn about Washington State you know, how many representatives there were and stuff like that. I didn't know that before. So I've learned a lot about that kind of stuff. And how so, is the state doing it? Are, are, are you all broken into um, several different teams? Yeah, we have five different teams mm-hmm. um, and we all have leads. So I'm one of the leads, Deb, Denise, um, Sherry, um, Frank, and um, 
uh, oh, I'm forgetting somebody. Uh, and um, and we all have two people because there are ten representatives. We all had mm-hmm. two people that we had to send letters to, and okay. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know there was a letter, so I just wrote my own. I've done this so many years, so I just wrote letters to them and you know, asked them, you know, if they had flexibility with their time. Their, their, mine are going to be two tomorrow, two to Friday. So, you know, that worked out very well for for me. And well, uh, it, so, it, you it, know. If you have any extra time, reach out to Idaho <laughs> across the board. <laughs> no, but, but, but I thought that it was really very, very well uh, done by Sherry, who's the government affairs uh, uh, lead here in Washington. And so she just divided the teams up, you know, the five teams up. And then she gave two people or three people or, a, you know, a few more people um, on the team who would be under us, who we could mentor and um, then, you know, what I did is send a message out to my team. I say, hi, team. You're on my team. I'm looking forward to working with you and that kind of stuff. So that's how it worked, worked out. Well, great. And I think it's really nice that you've got a multiple days to do it. You're not trying to do it all in one day. So that's sure. good. Thanks, Lynn. Yeah, you bet. And right. Dan, once, once we get back a good number of Hill feedback forms, we will mm-hmm. also be putting out a survey regarding this event. Isn't that correct? On uh, what folks' impressions were, what worked well, uh, areas for improvement, so that we can learn, you know, as we're, as Cindy says, laying the tracks as we're also driving the train um, for how to improve on something like this in the future. Yeah, I'd say look for that to come out sometimes, maybe the end of next week or the beginning of the week after that, but fairly soon. We want to get it out within the next, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 10 days or so before people, uh, you know, kind of lose their memories of the, the event. All right, Tom, you may unmute. Okay. Hello, everybody. Hi, um, yeah, Tom. Hey, Dan. Uh, Sheila, everybody. Um, I just want to say I'm really new to all this. And over the weekend, yes, Sheila, I was paying attention. (laughs) I was listening to ACB radio. And the more I listened, the more excited I got. And the more I just kind of listened and just took kind of took it all in. And I just want to say I'm just real excited about tomorrow at 9 o'clock and see what goes on and where we go from here. But, uh, yeah, it's been been quite interesting. And uh, thank you. Hey, Tom. So yeah. I heard you ask the question there at the end of the last panel. How how'd that make you feel to get up there and ask that question to all those panelists? I that I, I know. It's like, <laughs> should I do this? Should I not? <laughs> I thought, you know what? I'm just gonna raise my hand and ask the question. And it was good. It was ah, good. that's that's great. It was wow. good. It's like you know, and I appreciated the feedback because it was a very good question and they've been fighting it for years. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it felt good. It felt really good. Well, thank you. Thank you. Another, another one tomorrow. of our newbies, Clark. Yeah, yeah. Another one of our yeah. Florida newbies. Enjoy tomorrow. Yeah. I will. I will. I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. Okay. You have no other hands raised. Well, I didn't realize that I was at a Florida Council of the Blind meeting here. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we've got a lot of advocates. Maybe they're afraid of their they're afraid of their president. <laughs> yeah, she, yeah, I am. <laughs> I did listen to ACB radio, Sheila. Though I was listening. <laughs> We're good job, Tom. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, again, if 
If anyone's having trouble arranging meetings, please reach out to us at advocacy at acb.org. The legislative imperatives and Hill one-pager are available on the D.C. leadership page of the ACB website, as well as the Hill feedback form, both in Word document, as well as a link where you can complete it online and submit it electronically. Uh, Dan, you know, filling out this uh, voting should be as easy as filling out this Hill feedback form, you know, just... Many different options. Folks can use their assistive technology. (laughs) I think it should. Please, I I echo what Clark says. Please return the feedback forms. That is what really completes the deal. You know, that that allows the ACB office to, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, collectively pull together all the different – comments from our representatives and our senators and really gives us a pulse of where where what where people's heads are and how they're feeling about this legislation especially going into a brand new session of the 117th congress so please take the time to fill out the forms it really makes all the difference and i also just i do want to give a shout out to alice and marcia and betsy and debbie and everybody from georgia that you know, have been so active over all the years walking on the Hill for for the Georgia Council of the Blind. We know you guys do a great job, and, uh, you know, thank you for all that you do. That's right. Well, and then before signing off here, just a, a big thank you again to the folks at ACB Radio as well as our Zoom hosts, uh, all of the ACB members, the Advocacy Steering Committee, which stepped up really big for panel moderators and uh, hosting community events on accessible apps and fitness here this evening, as well as um, transportation, doing their monthly event later this week. And Dan, what do we always say? Let's keep keep advocating.